Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Brazen Education. On episode 39, our topic is the intersection of public health and education and i have a special guest today with me the nicole d vick a little bit about nicole nicole is a public health professional educator civil leader civic leader and author the title of her first book is called pushing through finding the light in every lesson um, in this particular story, uh, she shares her heartbreaking pain and extraordinary, extraordinary triumphs that led to her advocacy and social justice work. Um, one of the things she's been doing over the last 15 years in Los Angeles is giving tools to communities, stakeholders to help them with the most underserved communities. For the last 12 years, she's been an adjunct professor of urban and environmental policy de- uh, in the urban and environmental policy department at Occidental College. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. To so Nicole, our topic right now is really talking about the intersection of public health and education. And I was wondering, how have your lived experiences, how do they show up in your work? How do they show up in the courses that you teach at Occidental College? You know, it's been very exciting to teach at Oxy. First, I want to say thank you for having me here. I forgot to say that first. Thank you for having me here. And I think that... One of the reasons that my lived experience has really sort of seeped into my teaching is because there are so many public health concepts that are very, very integral to my life. For example, I was a teen mom. And so teen pregnancy, African-American infant and maternal mortality, those are really, really important public health concepts. I also talk about the link between educational attainment and health outcomes. And many people don't know that literally the more uh, education you have, the longer you live. And so I get to kind of tell a story about my educational experiences, help the students understand, you know, how their educational experiences have impacted their health. And so it it just feels like for me, my life as a black woman um, raised in South Central Los Angeles, is really just an open book and and an opportunity for me to talk about things like another example, violence as a public health issue and explain the gang violence, police violence, and how those things impact uh, residents in in the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And then I can draw those connections with the students to help them understand. So it's really been an exciting opportunity for me to share. One thing I'll say before I I stop is that um, also, I realized that I am, in, in many instances, my student's first Black teacher as well. So it's like, this is an opportunity for me to shine and show um, a different side of life or society that a lot of my students haven't seen at all. So it's really been an exciting experience. Thanks for sharing that. And what I found interesting about what you just said was the fact that their education experience can really cost them some health issues. So what type of things um, do you talk about in your courses um, that happens to um, kids during their education that shows up as a health issue? So one of the examples I kind of just touched on was violence. So there are unfortunately, you know, a lot of children, especially in urban school areas that are exposed to violence in their communities. And then they are, you know, they have to go to school the next day and be and are expected to focus 
to understand what's being taught, to deal with their emotions in some way. And they're often they're not able to do that. And there's even a program in the local school district here, Los Angeles Unified School District, where some schools actually have social workers, um, psychiatrists and mental health professionals to help students deal with trauma. There was one story I saw once where a young boy, his mom had a miscarriage. And so he was devastated, mother was devastated and he was having a hard time in school. So sometimes real life, well actually all the time, real life kind of seeps into children's lives and then they're expected to go to school and, and be able to pay attention. And some, so, so those are some of the immediate health issues that, that I talk about with my class. But then in the, from the public health perspective, we talk about long-term health effects, right? So you may make it to school and be okay, but if your school system is not well-resourced, the teachers aren't um, prepared or, or with the tools to teach the children that are traumatized, um, children may drop out and, and then it's up on a trajectory where they're not able to get, have gainful employment. Um, they may pick up bad behaviors like smoking or drinking that may just set them on a trajectory for a shorter life expectancy. So all of those pieces really play a part in, in sort of trying to figure out what will happen ultimately in that child's life. And I think you made some very good points, uh, very good points there, because you really talked about the fact that if children are having a bad educational experience and then all these things are almost like dominoes, because you, the end result that I heard and really caught my ear was the fact that you said they'll have shorter life expectancies. So if I don't get a good education and I am not able to learn and then get gainful employment, I may pick up bad habits. Those bad habits, in turn, may shorten my life expectancy. And if I'm trapped in the same neighborhood where I've already seen violence, I just kind of continue on that cycle. So with the students that you have in your uh, college courses, you talk about the fact that you many times you're the first black teacher that they've had. And, and we're talking about college. You're talking about they went all K-12, and then the first black teacher they have is a professor. So how do you kind of use um, – um, that knowing that knowledge, when you're passing this information, do you feel like an extra obligation being a black woman to make sure you're emphasizing certain issues to those students? Yes, absolutely. We talk about, so just back, the class is an introductory public health course. So we talk about the main purpose of public health, which is prevention of disease and promotion of health. But then we have to talk about things like racism. We have to talk about things like the social determinants of health and health equity. How, hey, how come some people uh, don't have housing? Why is housing set up the way it is? Or, hey, yes, education is free in this country, but why do some people get a worse education than others? Like we have to have those very real conversations. Um, and I think for me, it really is my way of saying to students, public health is, is so important and such a, a huge social justice institution that it's my responsibility as a black woman to make sure you understand how society is structured so that you can go out when you graduate from college and change the world because we trying to do it right now and it's, it's, it's rough and we want the next generation to be able to pick up you know the the baton and keep going so um this past semester when covid kind of really popped on the scene um the students had to get sent home and one of the things I loved so much, even though it was still devastating for them, they were like, I am traumatized right now, but everything that you taught us, I see it because I'm living it. And I'm like, that's the, that is what I was trying to tell you this whole time. So I loved that 
I don't love that COVID happened. <laughs> That's a bad thing. But I love that they were able to see it in real time, that what I was talking about wasn't just some abstract, you know, thing in the clouds. Like the concepts I'm teaching you are very real. And they were actually able to understand it because they were literally living through it. And I was like so excited. And they were like, why is she so excited? I'm like, you guys don't realize you are living public health history. So I love teaching because I can just really interject my work experience, what's going on in my in my day-to-day job, and really, you know, kind of where I come from and, and how I live and how folks like me live. So they understand. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I know you can tell I'm so excited. I'm like, it's amazing. No, I wonder, uh, because uh, for the last, I guess, five or six years, I've been teaching uh, some different college courses. Um, my background is literacy. So I've taught like um, psycholinguistics, um, linguistics for English learners. And I can't show up as a black woman without like bringing my experiences. But I always seem to have one or two people in the class that hardcore like pushes back. And they feel like I'm trying to push some type of agenda. So how do you do with pushback or students questioning the need to talk about racism or the need to talk about social justice issues where we're thinking about the intersection of like education and public health? You know, I've been lucky. Um, I haven't had an issue so far. No one has outright said anything to me about that. But I think it always is important to go back to the data, to go back to what's going on. And so one of the important parts of public health is their assessment function. We track data on everything. So if someone says, well, why are we talking about race? We're all human. All lives matter. Let's look at the data because the data says something different. And we need to be questioning why the data says something different. Why do African-American, uh, African-American infant mortality rates, why are they three or four times higher than white women? Why is that? Why are, do black children graduate from high school at a lower rate than, than other children? It is not because we don't care about education and it is not because we're sicker than anybody else. There is something happening in this country that has created a disproportionate impact and we have to open our eyes and realize it. So if anybody ever said that to me, I'm ready. I got my stats. <laughs> I got all the historical context. We can have a full-fledged conversation about it. But I think the data in some ways all is often a good tool to start with and say, well, why do you think these numbers are like this? And let, let's talk about that. So I always go um, to the data first and then we can go from there. I like how you talked about like using the, uh, the data because a lot of times it's, it's easier to push back on someone where you're like, no, let's go back to the data. So do you have any stories about students who've taken your class and kind of moved on and some of them able uh, to do um, based on things they've learned from you? You know, I've had students um, say, you know, I didn't even know what public health was when I took this class. And now I'm interested in going to graduate school and getting a master's degree in public health. And so I'm like, wow. And, and that's really one of the things that I look forward to hearing from students. Um, I have gone to guest speak in graduate programs. Um, these are MPH students, master's degree in public health students. And I'm talking about things like diversity, leadership, um, being at the table and not on the menu. And sometimes I'm like, uh-oh, did I say too much? Am I, am I pushing too many buttons? Am I going too far? And I remember one situation where a student ran, a young Latina student came, ran after me as I was walking down. And she said, you know what? 
You are the only person, I've been in this graduate program for almost two years. You are the only person that is talking about these issues. And I felt like you understood where I was, where I'm coming from. And I so much want to do what you're doing. And I'm like, that's, that's all I needed to know. If that one woman now has, has been inspired to go do some work in her community, I'm, I'm happy. So um, there are a lot of them that have said, thank you so much. Even if it's just to say, I now better understand what's happening in the world. Um, and feel compelled to help change it. So maybe they don't want to be um, a graduate, uh, get an MPH degree or work in public health, but there's usually one or two students that say, wow, I think I want to be a doctor. I think I want to go into public health. So it's really amazing to see. That's uh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. When you're thinking about things that students can do in public health or just people in public health, where do you think maybe two or three levers that we could pull or two or three things that we really need to attack that are really help outcomes like change in education or even vice versa the, the other way? Like what are because there's so many issues like you talked about, like what are the things that we could actually do or maybe put more focus on? Well, we definitely need to think about how we fund education. I think we don't put enough funding into the things that are important. Uh, we don't pay we don't pay teachers enough. We don't. Um, and we need to work on that. We also need to work on getting, I would say, and I've said this before, more black teachers, especially black male teachers, into classrooms across the country. Um, it makes a big difference when when students can one either identify with the teacher in the classroom, or if you are not black, it helps to see oh, my teacher is a black man. That's cool. Um, and to, uh, you know, not to see them as this, this person over there that we never see. This helps for people to be familiar with other cultures. We need to have more implicit bias training for teachers um, because I, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing a lot about students that have had some really negative experiences with teachers um, that don't validate or, or understand or embrace students' culture. Um, but I think the funding thing, you know, right now there's this huge debate about getting school police out of schools. And I support that. I think there needs to be more money um, spent on counselors, social workers, um, and people like that that can really wrap themselves around these students and make sure they have the best experience possible. I mean, I would also say we may want to consider uh, figuring out ways to, again, go back to integrating schools, but that forced integration, I don't know if that's the thing. Um, I just have so many different ideas about how things should work. But number one, more money, more money, more training, more support and resources for the teachers and for the students, bar none. I liked how you talked about how there are public health issues um, that could be addressed right now with kids in school. Um, so what type of, you talked about getting more counselors in the school. What do you uh, what do you see like counselors could do or what type of programming um, could be done to help kids like dealing with trauma like right now? As you say, they may be coming to school with trauma and, you know, they may see a police officer and, you know, they may have a negative uh, experience with police because maybe their parents have been arrested before. So what type of so how if you could design your dream school and have like um, health integrated uh, mental health integrated, what would that look like? If we, we had all the money in the world, what would it look like? Uh, one of the things I would love to see, and I know some schools are doing now, restorative justice policy. So, you know, that zero tolerance stuff, you got to go type stuff, expelling and, and kind of pushing children out of school to me is not a good idea. Restorative justice programs, I think, are, are very effective. 
Um, I have seen programs in elementary schools where the students get to do things like art therapy. Um, they learn things like yoga. And so just really ways to, um, instead of being punitive to students and families, very much a supportive uh, mechanism for, for families. The other thing I would say is I also would love to see a little bit more um, interaction with parents. I think sometimes schools, you know, well, the parents don't want to be involved or they're this or they're that. And sometimes there's even an adversarial relationship between the parents and the teachers in the school. Um, finding more creative and innovative ways to allow parents to be involved and engaged in their students. Um, um, education, because ultimately they are the thing that kind of makes, keeps things moving along. If the parents aren't engaged, it makes it really hard for the children to learn. So how can we be innovative and be creative in figuring out ways to let parents be more engaged and involved in their children's education, for sure. I like that idea of art therapy because I've never heard anybody mention that before, but that actually sounds like a great way um, to have kids work through things because you hear like that is a treatment. That is a way to help people process through art, but that's not something you typically see in school. You may, if they have SEL, you may see the mindfulness, you may see the yoga piece, um, but that art therapy piece I haven't I'm heard of before. How do you tackle because a mental health therapy is still a stigma in communities of colors, in particular the black community? But how do we approach that conversation knowing like if a child has experienced trauma, they may have an interrupted education, they may have switched from house to house to house. All those experiences kind of can tie into like having mental health issues. But when schools sometimes go to approach the parent about it, it's like you trying to get into my business. They don't need therapy. So how do you kind of make it more accepted and not make the parent feel like we're trying to have your kid in therapy to get info on you, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a very valid concern for a lot of parents, especially when it comes to um, children being diagnosed. Um, children being placed in the special ed, you know, we don't, we've heard, you know, situations where black children are sort of pushed into um, special education, for example, or labeled or diagnosed. So I can understand the concerns from my parents' perspective, like, wait a minute, what are you, what are you trying to say or what's going on? Um, on the one hand, I will say, though, I think that the tide is slowly changing. Like, we're starting to see um, therapy, counseling, become more normalized in the, in the black community. I don't know how how well it has, you know, the tables have turned, but I ha am starting to see those types of conversations happening a little bit more often. So I think the, the, that's the upside that people may be more receptive to it at this point in time. Um, and I think it just comes with, again, really talking to people, um, parents, especially in love, like, you know, I, we wanna help your child succeed and here's how we propose to do that. Um, this person here is here to help. Um, and it's just always having that relationship and that conversation matters. It's one thing if I, I've never talked to you before and then you call the school, you call me and tell me my kid needs this. this who are you? But if I have a relationship with you and you say, you know, we're concerned, he seems to be a little bit upset or have some anxiety. And I wonder if you want to talk to nurse such and such. Well, maybe that sounds a little bit more okay. Maybe I'll be willing to try that. So I think the relationships with parents really will make the difference um, whether they are receptive to suggestion or not. And that often is the, the, makes the difference for anything in life, right? The relationship you have with someone. 
No, I think that's a good point because when you were talking about um, that trust factor, it made me think of like the black community because you have parents who've had negative experiences in school. So they're already showing up to the school with a chip on their shoulder, think that trusting the school. And then we're talking about health and, you know, doctors and therapy. And you have the black community where you have people that also don't trust uh, the public health. And when you think about like the Tuskegee experiment and different things like that, I mean, I, I have great uncles um, in my family. Um, colon cancer is something that's very prevalent on my father's side of family. And almost all of them had colon cancer. And we knew it was a thing, but they didn't trust the doctor. So it's like, you're going to let yourself die of this disease because you have so much fear that you're going to be experimented on or the doctor's going to lie to you or they're not going to take your uh, your concerns seriously. Because there's so many studies that are out there that talks about how uh, black people are believed or, that you know, it's just like, oh, that, you don't have nothing wrong with you. Just go, uh, go ahead. And then you find out that you do. And so that's also a burden of trust. So I really like how you talked about like that relationship piece is key because if I don't, if I already have preconceived notions about the health system, I already have preconceived notions about the education system and you claim you're going to help me and I don't trust, trust either of those systems. It just makes the parent feel unsafe. And when parents feel unsafe, they feel like they're protecting their child, but we know like their child is not getting protected because they have these issues um, that are bubbling up. And then um, the other thing, uh, what about the educators? Because we talk so much about students needing mental health, but we a lot of times leave educators out of um, the situation. Can you talk a little bit about like what secondary trauma is? Like you're not experiencing the trauma, um, but you're the teacher because uh, I think we don't talk enough about like when you're in a room and it's like I can have, I think about one classroom I had. I had a student who was homeless. I had a student who was living with their grandma. Parents got arrested. I had another student um, who was in foster care. So these are all kids in one classroom, all showing up with a chip on their shoulder. And I'm trying to teach English. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about maybe on what schools could do for the teachers and even what things teachers can do to even cope um, with their own health issues of mental health issues? Yeah, that could be really hard. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I can't liken it to the situation that I had at work. So in work, at work, I'm not a teacher at work. I'm, I'm a program director, but I was sitting in a training and they were talking about racial equity and they put this big slide up on the wall and it said something like blacks fare worse in every single system in society. And they said education was one of the factors. It was housing, meaning most of us are um, homeless or not most of us are homeless, but the majority of homeless people are black. Um, Overrepresentation in the criminal justice system and all that. And so I'm sitting in this room in a professional meeting, and my personal life started to kind of seep through. My personal emotions started to seep through in that space. So that to me is very similar to what you're describing. You're trying to you're trying to do your job. You're trying to be a teacher, uh, but you you know that your students are suffering, and and so you're you know trying to deal with those emotions, that secondary trauma. And so one of the things that I did was write a book. That's how I got that out of me, because <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. And I need to figure out how to, to, to make sense of what, what's going on in my life. Um, I think that teachers, schools have a responsibility to make sure that teachers are taken care of. And that's one of the things I thought about after I left that meeting that day. In my, in my job. I'm like, what is my employer doing so that I can get counseling or some sort of services? or some kind of help for me to process those feelings because it can be hard to remain professional 
when there's so much sort of coming, you know, things coming at you. So I think schools have that responsibility to offer mental health services. Um, I know some people have what's called EAP, where they can speak to a counselor um, free of charge during work hours. Those types of things need to be available. Um, and, and as far as what a the individual teacher can do, um, I find that I take time for me. You know, I, I do self-care. Um, I rely on, on my closest friends to, you know, kind of talk and sort through um, the things that I'm going through. But having a hobby or something that, you know, is not work related that I can do that is totally different from, you know, what I do on a day to day basis to kind of release and relax um, is really very important. But, yeah, I think schools have to do I don't know what they're doing in schools now, but there needs to be some sort of a resource for, uh, for teachers to um be able to get some help with that because that it can be overwhelming. I was overwhelmed at work that day. Very different experience, but I still remember feeling very overwhelmed. Um, and that can can wear wear teachers down, and then they get burned out, and then they leave. And so then we're stuck with you know teachers that are are good, um, but that are forced to leave because there's just so much going on. You mentioned in your book, um, Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson, and you talked, and I know you uh, told me that it kind of led to your advocacy and social justice work. So could you share a little bit, I know you don't want to give away the whole story, but could you share a little bit about some of the th things that you highlighted that kind of... Um, kind of put you in the position because like I think about education is my calling. Like there's a, there's things that happened in my life that made me want to be an educator. So how, talk about your book and like what got you into public health and, and being like a social justice warrior. So I got into public health 20 years ago and I started working. I was a teen mom. I was in college, my first year of college, trying to figure out what am I doing here? I don't know what, first of all, like, why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing? And then on top of that, I'm pregnant. Um, and I had my daughter, she was a premature infant. I had her eight weeks early and she's actually 23 right now. So she's grown and an adult. We all, everything worked out. She's fine. I'm fine. Um, but during that time, I realized that I needed a job. Like, okay, well, she's here and I can't, I, I have to go to work um, and go to school. So I ended up in the student worker position at the County of Los Angeles. They had a, a sexually transmitted disease program. And back in those days, they had a hotline. I think they still have that hotline. And so one of the things I was responsible for was answering the phone. And I'm talking to people, giving them references to clinics to get tested. Some people would call and they would be so scared about what they were experiencing, their symptoms. They're trying to ex explain or describe their symptoms to me. And I'm like, I'm not a doctor. You have to go and get tested and treated. So the thing that was um, that made the difference for me is that the people I worked with were health educators. They would go out into the community. They're teaching young people or whoever really wanted to listen how to be safe, how to prevent STD, sexually transmitted. And so I was like, dang, I think I want to do this. And the 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 key was I had to go back to school. So I had to go back to graduate school and work at the same time. And um, I was able to graduate and get into my full-time public health position. I worked in South LA. So when I got my permanent position as a health educator, I was in my neighborhood. I got the wonderful honor to work in the same community that I lived in. And so I just started to notice things that I hadn't noticed before. How come my neighborhood has liquor stores all up and down the block, 
But if I go to the other service area or the other region in Santa Monica or Culver City, there's no liquor stores like that. Why, why is this different? And so that is where I really fell in love with public health and realized the way that our society is set up um, specifically for black and brown people uh, is not fair. It's not fair. We're in communities with no resources, 500 liquor stores, no grocery stores. Why is that okay? Why is that okay? And so that's where it all began 20 years ago. Oh, I like what you said about those liquor stores and the communities. Because we, you hear so much about, you know, you have school choices, you have charter schools popping up, and, you know, those people, they need to stay in their neighborhood. They need to, you know, not go to these other options. But the way you describe that neighborhood, like I think about where my parents live. They live on the east side of Indianapolis, and they're in a food desert. Um, there is a grocery store there for most of my childhood that is now gone. So my parents are driving just to go to the grocery store and people don't think about the fact like when you take those things away. So you're saying that children don't even have access to good food. And we all know like what you put into your body kind of helps you throughout the day. So if all you're putting into your body is pop and chips and junk and then you're showing up to school, um, you're going to have a sugar crash. And that's also affects like how kids show up. And I think a lot of times we don't think about like. It's not only the school, because I know some of your work is you talk about how you're trying to work in the community. It's like the whole community. We put so much burden on the school, but it's like, why is the kid walking past three different liquor stores before they get to the school? Why isn't there a grocery store that they could stop on the way and get like some fruits and some vegetables? Uh, so some of those things, um, I mean, like you said, and then like working in your community because so many people, um, they choose not to work in their community. And there's no judgment uh, if you don't want to work in your community. But I feel like people show up differently. They fight harder because it's like if I'm living this. So if I don't make this better, then my personal situation isn't going to be better. Um, so talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you try to advocate or have pushed in the community. One of my biggest um, sort of causes that I champion is the whole infant mortality and maternal mortality issue. Um, as I mentioned earlier, African-American infant and maternal mortality is, is a huge problem. Our rates are so much higher um, than others. And so Black women are literally dying trying to have babies or their babies are dying. And the interesting thing about it is I talked to you earlier about education sort of being this social determinant of health. The more education you have, the longer you live, the healthier you are. But we're even seeing that among Black women, even higher, edu more educated Black women still have infant and maternal mortality rates that are higher than white women in the same category. So it's like, wait a minute, what else is happening in this country that is impacting Black women so much that they are literally dying um, trying to have babies or um, their babies are dying? That's one thing. The other one is violence. Um, violence definitely is a public health issue. We tend to think of it as a criminal justice issue, which I think is why we we, we tend to say, yes, more money for police. Yes, more uh, police officers, more police officers. When actually the public health perspective for violence prevention is not, a, you know, prefaced or, or grounded in law enforcement at all. It's things about, it's about having more uh, community resources, about having recreation programs for young people. So violence is, is something that we can prevent, just like we can prevent a disease. And that's another one that I'm very, very much concerned about. 
And, and, you know, I just really am big on social justice in general. And, and again, as you were talking about this, hey, why does our neighborhood not look like someone else's neighborhood? And, you know, someone similar in a different part of the city, but your neighborhood looks way better. Why is that? And how do we fix that? So that's not necessarily a specific public health issue, but I'm really big on that. Like, no, we, we want parks. We want nice schools. We want a, a grocery store and those things just like anybody else does. You know, folks here work hard um, and they deserve the same things that anybody else does. And how can we make it right so that people have those same opportunities and resources? I liked how you said, like, you know, there's so many things you can focus on and that we do want nice things like nice parks, but that, that's not going to keep us alive. And I think about that because I think about it in Annapolis. I know schools like where most of the kids are students of color and then you'll have like, a, you know, a big organization. We're going to replace your playground. And as much as that's great that we're going to replace your playground. When you think about some of the things that you just talked about, like the infant mortality rate, um, you're talking to, uh, you know, you're talking about someone actually dying. <laughs> and so getting a nice playground doesn't uh, expand my life expectancy. Yeah, it gives me something to play on. You know, I get that 60 minutes of play in there, but that doesn't uh, really uh, solve my issues. Um, and I think sometimes we forget about that. And then the other thing I like that you pointed out, that it is a race issue because um, I started reading the book, so you want to talk about race. And the first chapter of that book talks about, is it really about race? And she goes and debunks like the whole it's a class issue. Because when you point it out, like even women who have higher education, um, they have issues like my own personal story. Um, having my twin sons, I started bleeding. I was passing clots. I called my doctor and she said, you're fine. And that's the moment where I'm like, no, like I know I'm not fine. That's not normal. So I like went to the emergency room and it wasn't normal. I was having like a serious medical issue and I immediately switched my doctor. And that's the thing, like you say something so dramatic like that to the doctor and they tell you you're fine. Not only did she tell me I was fine, she wouldn't even let me come in for an appointment. And so at this point I'm like, and I have tried to get pregnant for years and years of infertility treatment. And so I was finally pregnant. That was just one baby with two. And you're telling me, oh, you're fine. I was just like, I can't take this risk. So I go to the emergency room. And of course I get believed at this point in time. And they were just shocked that that was the advice I got. And so it doesn't really matter if you are upper class, middle class or lower class, if you're black. A lot of times these things affect you just the same. And a lot of times when people want to bring in the poverty thing, I'm like, no, no, no. It doesn't matter how much money I make. I still get treated the same way. These issues still affect me disproportionately. Um, so I really appreciate you like bringing out that statistic because a lot of times people are just like, oh, it's not a race issue. We don't need to talk about race. We just need to fix the class issue. Once we fix that, the race stuff will go away. And, and, it, and it really... Uh, it just really won't. <laughs> right. I'm thinking of. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, and you're right. And I think I've seen I've seen a lot of that too. Like, well, no, it's it's a class issue. But if you if you if if you pay attention, a lot of the class issue is also grounded in race. It's it's all intertwined. You can't undo it. It's all linked together. Why are more black people look poor? It's, it's set up that way. We set our system up. Why is the net worth of a black family is, is so very low compared to a white one? All of it is set up the same way and is grounded in racism. It's all linked together. 
No, and you're right. And I think about like um, the generational wealth gap, the gap between white families and black families. And if you think about both of us, I mean, we have higher education, but people forget like the things that we may have had to do to achieve is not the same thing someone had to do if they were white. Or they may not, or they may have been in a situation where there was like a little nest egg that paid for their college. You know, a lot of times, you know, I have so many luck. I don't have any student loans now, but I have so many friends. I'm about to be 37. I have so many friends that are still paying off debt because the only way they could go to school was to take out all this debt. Their parents couldn't help them out because their parents were already working two or three jobs just to keep the light on. So it's like, if you want to go to college, you're going to have to figure that out. And so you have well-educated people who are, you know, have a decent salary, but all their salaries go into loans and go into debt. And then they have children now. So, you know, they look like they got ahead, but they're still really further back um, than other people. So I think that that is so, so important. And then that ties into what you said before. Um, you may get into things like your, your drinking, your stress, or you may pick up other habits that shortens your lifespan. So even though you quote unquote made it or got ahead, you're back there with like a health situation because of the strain of everything. How do I pay back my loans? How do I keep my house? Okay, now I have a kid. I want my kid to also go to college. Well, they'll do better than me, but I don't have nothing that set me up that way. So I, I think um, you're right because when you talk about that infant mortality, we are essentially saying our kids may not even get to kindergarten because they just might die as an infant. And I think sometimes people miss it. So the fact that your kids showed up at kindergarten they made it through all those statistics. And then they get to kindergarten, they may still not be set up uh, set up for success. And um, when I think, when you think about like your work, um, have you had any opportunities to work directly with the schools in LA or some of your students? No, I have not. But I know in my job, where I worked, there were people that did work directly with schools. They would go into the schools and sometimes do things like direct health education. They would teach nutrition classes. They would do things like that. Um, we have worked with some of the universities in our community. I used to go to USC and um, talk to the master's degree students sometimes around certain health issues. I would take interns and things like that. Um, there was a project that we were working on with the school districts. Um, I can't remember the exact nature of it, but they were trying to put together this report and they were trying to make sure that the school districts understood um, why education is important from a public health perspective. So we have done some sort of high level work with the school districts. Um, and I think we've also kind of had some smaller conversations. Yeah, we're going to send a public health nurse, for example, to go into the classroom and talk about why smoking is bad. Um, or we're going to teach them about nutrition. So we would do some of that, but not as much as we probably should have or could have. You know, there's so many other things, unfortunately, things like coronavirus or um, other types of outbreaks or diseases, and it makes it sometimes hard. Um, but we've also done other things with young um, children. For example, um, here in LA County, there's a program called Parks After Dark. I don't even know if they're going to do it this summer because of coronavirus. But what they would do is they would open the, the county parks up after it got dark. They would turn all the lights on. And so it was a way to, it was the, the purpose of the program is actually to reduce violence. And they did some data on it and they realized that in communities that had this parks after dark, parks after dark program, the violence did go down because all the kids were playing, they were getting fed, they were doing movie night, the families could come together and it was just a really good time 
and it just kept everyone occupied. So it's really hard to kind of do other things that you shouldn't be doing with your um, with your family at the park. And it's been an amazing program. I believe they are working to expand it year round. But of course, now with coronavirus, everything is really changing, and, and it's being it's becoming very difficult to do those types of programs and try to keep people engaged in that way. Um, so that's kind of our the extent of the work that we've done with schools and with young people. Gotcha. And I think you made some good points because I think sometimes we forget about the power between the relationship between higher education and K-12. And a lot of times we're out here looking for consultants or looking for people. And right there you have a university that could come in and partner with the school. But I also like that community piece about like the parks after dark. And then, like you said, Ty, right back to the data. Now that we have this program, we're noticing that violence is decreasing. And if we know if the violence decrease, you have kids not coming to school with that type of trauma in their background. So so it's like you can't just have everything like in their own silos. It's like all of these different stakeholders have to work together like hand in hand to make this whole situation better because we're thinking about I want my kid to go to school. I want my kid to have a good education. I want them to be a successful citizen. But all the things that certain kids, black and brown kids have to go through, all the hurdles they have to jump through. I mean, we need to really um, increase uh, these partnerships. And so um, we're running towards a close here. Are there any um, additional thoughts uh, you would like to share before we wrap up? I just want to make reference again to the book. I have a copy here. Um, really proud of this effort that I put together or put forth. It did uh, debut at number one on Amazon. The Kindle version debuted at number one in the healthcare delivery section. And it's really an opportunity for people to understand, again, as you said, how I really made my journey into public health. And there's also discussion here about my education as a child and, and the benefit and the impacts that um, happened to me. All my teachers in elementary school were Black, every single one. The principal was Black everybody, the PE teacher, all of them, and what that did for my life and how it, it really made a difference for me. So I think that this was a beautiful conversation to help bring that link between public health and education together. People don't often think of it, you know, them as being related. Um, so I'm glad to be here today with you and um, just thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Uh, so I had on today, Nicole D. Vick. Um, check out her book, Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. And uh, thanks so much for listening, guys.